Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. continuing our reading tonight from Matthew chapter 25. There are three stories right in a row in this almost at the end chapter of this gospel, and we're continuing on the theme of wait for it. We're recognizing that we live in the time between when you begin to recognize what God wants and when God actually gets everything God wants. Jesus had some thoughts about that. Jesus said, For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to their ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See? I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't scatter? Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take that talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (sighs) This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The name of this sermon is Unclench. But before we start, a preliminary remark. Concerning slavery, 
or an economic system that rests on the trading, that is, the buying and selling of human bodies, human beings, as involuntary and unpaid laborers. There was a time when our white Christian forebears were untroubled by the presence of slavery and enslaved persons and slaveholders in the New Testament, including in the stories about Jesus and in the stories Jesus told and in the company of the early church. But as our awareness of the gross injustice of such an economic system has grown, white late modern Christianity has sometimes attempted to mitigate the effects of slavery's presence in our sacred text and on the lips of our savior. One such effort has been to translate slave as servant wherever possible. A soft focus lens that keeps the reader from seeing clearly the economic and relational realities the text relies upon. As in the new international version of the Bible, the NIV that many of us have on our shelves. Beware that soft focus. It obscures one thing, but reveals another, namely the unwillingness of white Christians to recognize and wrestle with the brutality with which our faith has sometimes been complicit. Another effort in white fundangelical circles involves defending or at least describing biblical slavery as something less harsh and more respectable than the slavery of modern times. It reminds me of some white supremacist Confederate apologists who want us to believe that enslaved Africans were happy on southern plantations. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. It seems right to me that A, we should translate as accurately as we can so as to retain the connection between the text and the world in which it was born. B, we should confess that there is not one of us who would prefer to have been born into the condition of being the property of another or would willingly release one of our children to live thusly, no matter how decent we pretend such a system could be for those whose lives are constricted by it. And C, we white U.S. American Christians should pay humble and penitent attention when our black siblings in faith tell us that these words, slave and master, pierce their hearts, most especially when they are on the lips of Jesus. These words are not neutral unless you and your ancestors were never hurt by them. And unless you imagine that you've not benefited by the system of white supremacy they bring to life in the minds of contemporary black readers. I believe that Jesus in the gospel of God's reign that he preached and embodied intended for all human beings to be recognized as being created lovingly by the hand of God in the blessed image of God and destined for the heart of God. I believe that Jesus, as we do, lived in a time in between, between our gaining of clarity about what God wants and the actual realization of God getting what God wants. The generation that came just after Jesus would say, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ and there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free. 
there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Even as they recited it as part of their baptismal liturgy, it was not yet true. Race and class and sex still mattered quite a lot and still produced heaps of inequality and injustice in their world as in ours. But because of Jesus, our ancestors in faith could both live in the world they were born into and strive toward the world they were born again for. He taught them how to imagine something different even while they lived with what was. That is not a satisfactory answer for many of you, I imagine, but it is the one I'm working with for now, and I'm hopeful that it is sufficient for the task ahead of us tonight. Let's begin. One thing is clear, it's not financial advice. If you're trying to manage your investments wisely, trying to build a nest egg for retirement or save up for a down payment on your first house or just keep the credit card debt or the student loan debt or the medical debt from eating your daily bread, don't listen to Jesus. He's terrible with money. You know they don't even let him keep it, right? They've got a guy for that. And whether you like that guy or not, it's that guy who's going to make sure they all get to eat at the end of each day with or without a dinner invitation to some stranger's house. Because after all these months of traveling with him, they know this about Jesus. He does not understand the value of a coin. He sees that old lady drop two pennies into the temple box, and he's over the moon saying she's given more than anybody. They roll their eyes. Her two pennies won't buy a single kilowatt to keep the lights on in that temple. They know it. He lets that other lady bust an alabaster jar of nard over his head, a gift that they could have turned into a hundred suppers for hungry crowds if he had let them manage it wisely. He says to let Caesar have the money because Caesar's patrician profile is stamped on it. He tells stories about paying all the workers the same at the end of the day when some of them only work the last half hour of the shift. He doesn't own anything. He doesn't want them to own anything either, telling him they shouldn't even carry a wallet because that'll just tempt them to get money and hold on to it. What do you need a wallet for, he shrugs. And now this story about the talents, it just shows again how much he does not understand. Like, maybe he honestly doesn't know that one single talent is a unit of measurement equivalent to 80 pounds of silver. It's about 6,000 denarii, a denarius being one day's wages for a paid laborer, meaning that one talent is about 16 years' worth of pay for any of the people he hangs out with when they have a job. It would be understandable if he didn't know that. He's probably never seen a talent in real life. It was the stuff of the very rich and very famous, not him, not any of his kin. Equally hilarious in Jesus' financial nonsense this time is that the master of the house tells his slaves that he's going to be gone for a really long time. And then he gives each of them approximately a kajillion dollars to take care of until he gets back. Five kajillion to one. 
two kajillion to another, and one cool kajillion to the third, who by all accounts is not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm saying the youngest school child would have known how absurd that is. You don't give slaves that kind of money, that kind of responsibility and temptation, not if you expect to see them when you get home. With that money in their very heavy luggage, they could travel the world for the rest of their lives, not a single credit card transaction to trace, and the master would never find them. They could write their own personal emancipation proclamation with that cash. So it's not about money, okay? Except in the jokiest possible way, because it seems unlikely that he doesn't know that they know he doesn't know a darn thing about it. Did you know that the English word talent, meaning a personal gift or a capacity or flair you might have, one that you've nurtured into something truly valuable to others, derives from the ancient Greek word for this unit of currency, the talenton, the 80 pounds of silver? Because this parable has very often been thought to encourage each person's investment of the thing they do best for the good of the reign of God. Whether you're as vastly talented as the five-talent slave or possessive of only a single small skill, it is right to recognize that all these gifts come from God and God expects them to flourish and grow as you invest them. And it is greatly, greatly disappointing to God in this reading if you bury your talent in the backyard. Whatever resources you've got, the church stands ready to help you multiply them if only you'll invest with us. And if you'll do that, well, you're well on your way to a hearty, well done, good and faithful servant <coughs> from God's very own self. And if you don't, well, there's hell to pay or something very much like it. The outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, the whole bit. Jesus said so. See, that whole interpretation depends on a couple things that seem rather iffy to me. One is our acceptance of the third slave's ideation of this master, that he is harsh and greedy, taking what doesn't belong to him. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. But listen, could this be the third slave's reasonable indictment of the whole system of slavery? That landowners routinely reap the harvest of someone else's labor, making money on the backs of those who do the real work, I call your attention to cabinet battle number one. A civics lesson from a slaver, slaver hey neighbor, your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the south, we create. Yeah, keep ranting, we know who's really doing the planting. Oh, I should totally be on Broadway. It looks like I buried that talent real, real deep. So what if in this parable framework of slaves and masters, what if Jesus here composes a moral critique of the system of slavery from the top down? Not so much that it dishonors the enslaved, but that it perverts the personhood of the slaveholder by allowing him to get rich on the backs of the poor and puts it in the mouth of that third slave 
who enrages the master deliberately by naming his immorality in front of God and everybody. Well, that would be one of those whispers of subversion against empire, against a brutal system of human hierarchy, a thread of countercultural testimony from the margins that Christian ears are trained to hear on the lips of Jesus. Anyway, if that's the kind of master you believed you had, the kind of system you knew you were trapped in, you would do well to bury your talent, wouldn't you? Keep your head down, play it safe. But this master of Jesus is imagining is more than one thing, isn't he? If the third slave has imagined him as harsh and dangerous, that is indeed the treatment he will receive at story's end. But it's the testimony of the first two. And I think it's two so that their experience will weigh twice as much as the third. That this master is atypical in this brutal system. That he entrusted his slaves with cajillions, for one, that's weird. That he gave no instructions for their enterprise in his absence, that's another weird thing. Pushing those checks across the desk with no sign of micromanagement, no request for quarterly progress reports. And also, weird, that upon receiving the first two slaves' excellent returns on his investments, he turns the money back over them, over to them. He instructs them to keep up the good work and enjoy the perks of their promotions. Is he really the vicious and greedy master of the third slave's imagining? Or the ridiculously trusting and collaborative master of the first two slaves' experience? Or is Jesus saying, perhaps, that we each get the God we imagine. If your theological imagination is trained to recognize and depend on and hope for God's unending generosity, you get that? If all you believe about God causes you to fear and tremble, causes you to clench your fists and your heart and your jaw and your butt cheeks tightly in religious tension, because God scares you and you're terrified to make a move because God might get you for doing it wrong, well, then maybe that's the exact future you make for yourself. Same master, different slaves, different outcomes. Mm. Because I can't for a minute imagine that Jesus intended to give financial advice as if he cared one whit about money, false God that it is, nasty enslaver that it is. And because I think the use your talents for the church interpretation depends over much on the financial investment strategy allegory that Jesus surely never intended, I have to ask then, what is Jesus asking from his hearers, those who will know his absence soon, those who will wait a long time in the absence of their Lord, entrusted with so much while he's away? I have to ask, what are they left with? those who feel his absence acutely, those who await his return with eagerness. They don't have 80 pounds of silver between them. What else could he have given them, bequeathed to them for the wait that is so long and growing longer with every passing day? What else of any value, what else in his possession to give in to theirs? I submit to you that the only currency Jesus ever gave a damn about, ever took outsized risks for, making some people so happy they danced all the way home, making others so mad they wanted to kill him, was love. That was his talent. 
that was his kajillion dollar gift that he loved extravagantly, recklessly, all the wrong people in all the wrong places. He loved them on the Sabbath when they came in sick and in need of healing. He loved them on the outskirts of town when they rang their leper bells and called out for his touch. He loved them when they were cast to the ground, dressed only in the bed sheets of their culpability. He loved them when they were bleeding and unclean. He loved them when their own sin, or was it their parents, might have been the cause of their blindness. He loved them when their neighbors hated their tax-collecting guts. He loved them when their neighbors knew they were sex workers and pretended to hate what they did. He loved them when they were out of their minds and seizing. He loved them when they were paralyzed and helpless. He loved them when they were snot-nosed, pea-soaked little kids. He loved them when they were hungry for food and starved for affection. He loved them when they were women. He loved them when they were enslaved. He loved them when they owned slaves. He loved them when they were his very religious kinfolk. He loved them when they were Gentiles. He loved them when they were loyal to him and when they weren't. He loved them when they hated him or abandoned him or begged him for help from the next cross over. He loved you and me when just about everybody else said he wouldn't, couldn't, didn't. It was his talent his 80 pounds of silver, his 10 kajillion dollars, his risk of a lifetime, he had shown them was at that very moment showing them, not just telling them what to do with love like that. Invest it, he said. Invest it in this world. Invest yourself in this world God still loves. Put yourself out there. Put it all on the line, all the love in your heart. Take huge risks because love is risky for sure. It can break your heart. But just try it and see what happens. When the master comes back, it's not so much the return, but the risk he's impressed by. Church, I don't know quite how to advocate in the age of COVID in a time where human interaction is ill-advised, that we are meant to take huge risks for the sake of love. I would never advise that you endanger yourself or anybody else by not following the strictest protocols for avoiding contagion. That's why you're at home and not here. We won't pretend that what God wants from us is reckless behavior in defiance of good science and good sense. But there are risks we're meant to take, aren't there? That don't require physical proximity? Aren't we meant to love beyond the boundaries of our own political bent, for example? And to main a, maintain a posture of reconciling possibility toward those who despise our own identities? And to remember the humanity of those who can't see ours? And aren't we meant to keep our hearts open to those who take advantage of our generosity and to reach out to the ones we suspect are alone and lonely 
even if there's little in it for us? And aren't we intended to push ourselves beyond what's comfortable and convenient to make sure that our community of belonging, this little safe haven for spiritual refugees, doesn't atrophy past the point of recovery while we wait for this pandemic to pass and to realize that it's no one's job but all of our responsibility to ensure its health and flourishing, to ensure that we've got something to come back to when we can come back, to love, I'm saying, to love beyond reason, beyond fairness, beyond any guarantee of return, beyond any math of any economic system the world has ever known, save one, save the unending generosity of the God who loves this world still and would do anything to have us home. Love like that, Jesus said, like this, right before he gave us everything he ever had. That kind of risk in the reign of God, that kind of risk is vindicated, he said, and the return on investment is beyond our imagining. It is as if a man, he said, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now what do we do? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.